Lodi with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the RoboHub podcast. Today we're talking about Eve, a humanoid robot developed by Holodi Robotics. Actually, to be more precise, we're talking about Eve R3, a fully integrated ROS-compatible humanoid robot platform designed specifically for researchers so they can focus on developing new algorithms and solutions without having to build their own platform first. The EVE R3 boasts direct force control for natively compliant operation, a built-in high-performance compute engine, as well as an Intel RealSense 435D camera for interaction with the environment and vision-based robot control. Our interview Audro caught up with Bernd Bernig, CEO and co-founder of Elodie Robotics, to find out how EVE R3 can be used in research. They discussed the design of EVR3's motors, specifically in relation to safety, direct force control and machine learning, its potential for use in research, and Bernick's long-term goals for Holodi Robotics and EVR3. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi there. Would you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm uh, Bernd, CEO and co-founder of Holodi Robotics. Would you tell me about the product that you have launching? Yeah, so that's uh, EVR3 our uh, robot platform, which is a fully integrated humanoid robot platform with our direct uh, force control technology for compliant operation. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a 23 degree of freedom humanoid. It has uh, two wheels for driving and a third point for contact. So it is essentially a human with one leg standing on a wheeled base with a third contact point for stable balance while manipulating and you can lift the third point for agile driving. It has uh, speakers, microphones, uh, two high-resolution screens making up a face for animations. and uh, Two? One for the eyes, one for the mouth? Is that yeah, how it works? Uh, oh. that's true. It's got like one vertical colon, one horizontal. Gotcha. Um, and uh, yeah. Okay. And it, uh, what's the software for this? It's ROS compatible, correct? Yes. So it's compatible with both ROS and ROS2. Um, mm-hmm. Internally, we're mainly running ROS2 as our communication layer. So we have that natively. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want, of course, also be compatible with everything that's already out there in the ROS ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who is this platform for? So initially now we're targeting uh, research labs that want to research mobile manipulation or human-machine interaction or preferably even both of them. Uh, There is some quite sophisticated balancing going on with the robot actively balancing while driving. Mm -hmm. And uh, some labs might also be interested in the balancing control problem part of it. And in that case we would grant access to like the low-level controllers for running on balance. And uh, that could also be an interesting research problem. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's pretty special on this platform is the motors. Uh, so in talking about those, we discussed some examples. Would you tell me first 
about the single rod example so we can work up to how your motor compares to other motors yeah sure so i can go like even further back and i can just say like uh this project started out with how can we make this platform that's highly capable and still safe around humans and to do that we basically need to have very good control over the forces preferably it should be passively safe and we shouldn't need to control the forces for it to be safe and this is achieved through just using very low transmission ratios so, so trying to explain this and could uh, go to the rod example, which is if you and if you picture that you have a motor and on this motor you attach a rod, and now when I apply some torque in the motor, you will feel some force at the end of the rod, and that's just the force that you're exerting on the environment. Uh, at this point, you have a very simple system, so there's essentially no friction, mm-hmm. and there's no backlash in any gears or anything. It's just a pure motor connected to a rod, and you're modulating the magnetic field in the motor to create like a torque. This creates a smooth force on the output. Mm-hmm. Now, if you start moving this rod backwards or forwards, you will still feel the same force. Uh, so like the force that you're exerting is, uh, that the rod is exerting is independent of the force the environment is exerting on the rod to a large part. It's not completely true, but it's roughly true. Uh, and uh, this means that w- we are quite safe because even if there's some external input to the system, you don't get any spikes in force. And uh, this gets worse if you start adding a transmission ratio. Mm -hmm. So at that point, if you have like a typical transmission ratio of 100 to 1 or something for a robot... Mm -hmm. And so this would be a gear connected to the rod at the pivoting part that swings the rod. Okay. Yeah, so at that point whatever's before your gear, like your input to your gear and your motor and everything would be spinning 100 times faster mm-hmm. than the joint itself. And since this is kinetic energy and follows the squared of the rotational speed, you would get 100,000 times the effective weight of that rotating system. Uh, or it's uh, 100, so it would be 10,000, but if you have... The gear ratio is commonly between 1 and 200 or 1 and 300. Right. It's, it's, it varies a lot between systems. So yep. I would say the typical gear ratio for a lot of systems is like between 100 and 200. 100 and 200? So that's 10,000? So that's 10,000. And 40,000 if yeah. that, when you have that squared relationship. Okay. Yeah. So, and of course, it's not, it's not 40,000 on your entire system. It's 40,000 on the mass of the system before the gear ratio. Mm-hmm. But since the factory is so large, it still becomes the dominating part of the system. Mm-hmm. And at this point, since you have such a large reflected inertia, if uh, you have an impact with this rod, that motor that's rotating now really fast would need to instantly stop for the rod to stop, Mm -hmm. which means you will get a huge spike in the force and it'll be dangerous for you. So that's why getting the gear ratio down and reducing the inertia is very, very important for safety. Can you make this a little more tangible? So if I had a mass at the rod... Um, I don't know. We worked through an example, and it was a two kilogram mass. And if we have a gearing of a hundred, yeah. So what I could say is just it's it's not uncommon that you see like the effective mass from a reflected inertia mm-hmm. just converted over to the end effector could be like two to three times more than actual payload of the arm itself. Mm-hmm. So, so it hits you're hard, you're basically. moving two kilograms, but you're effectively moving six due to your reflected inertia. Mm-hmm. So your arm needs to move way slower to be safe. So we want to make robots that are very capable but still safe. So whatever we can pull off with like speed, 
and lifting capabilities mm -hmm. with less energy in the system. It really comes down to energy, like how much energy is it in the movement that you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, makes it intrinsically safe while still being capable. And uh, yeah, and then there's also the really interesting problem of like, how do you actually control the forces? Because once you introduce the gear, you will have a lot of friction and mm -hmm. you will have play in the gear. And that means that you can no longer use directly your motor as torque because there will be a lot of errors in these terms that you can't cancel. Mm -hmm. And you would need to start measuring the actual torque output at the joint mm -hmm. to be able to know what your force is at the end of the rod. And then doing this, uh, closing the loop in the controller mm -hmm. on, on the joint torque sensor then would uh, mean that your system slows down, you get a much lower bandwidth, you get some phase delays in your sensing, and uh, it becomes uh, interaction with the, the world becomes much more complicated. And mm -hmm. yeah. that, um, so when you have the gears, there's a bit of um, the, the what, what's it, the um, backlash that the gears have. And because of that, it makes it nonlinear when you're trying to represent that. Yeah, so you could say that if I, let's say I apply some, let's say one newton meter. I apply one newton meter at my motor. Mm -hmm. and then what actually happens at my joint. Now, if there's play, then you apply one newton meter, the motor starts spinning, but you actually have zero newton meters at your joint because the teeth hasn't engaged yet in the gear. Mm -hmm. and then you get like a forced transient spike yep. once your teeth suddenly engages. Yeah. Uh, because now your rotating mass has an actual speed. Yep. And then at some point there, you start to get the torque that you hope to achieve. Mm -hmm. And now you need to feed this back. So you need to like measure what was actually my output torque at the joint. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you need a certain number of like control cycles before you actually achieve the desired joint torque. Mm -hmm. And that slows down your system. And, uh, and because of that, you can't respond as quickly and that would change your the bandwidth you can run your motor at because you have to... Um, yeah, or not really bandwidth of the motor, but it would change the bandwidth of your system more at like the joint level. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and then so that's nonlinear, and that makes things more complicated. But then there's also the friction from the gears. Yeah, so it's like kind of like no free lunch, right? You, yep. you can choose a harmonic gear with a very high friction, or not even maybe yep. call it friction because it's actually ring deforming. Yep. But it's like a nonlinear resistance, yeah. uh, but very little play in the gear. Mm -hmm. uh, or you could choose like a spur gear or planter gear, and you would have more play in the gear, but you would have less friction. Yep. And but both of them are nonlinear to the point where you typically need to introduce a torque sensor yep. to be able to measure your torque output. Yep. And if you don't measure your torque output, there's no good way to estimate the acceleration, which is super important for like when, for example, when we're doing balancing. Mm -hmm. If you push the robot and we compute like, oh, we need to move the we need to move the torso or hip or some joint uh, with a certain acceleration in some direction to compensate, mm -hmm. then we need to know that we like instantly achieve exactly the accelerations we want. Mm -hmm. That we can do really good balancing, which okay. is why this open loop torque control, as it's called, approach to uh, to control makes for a very very good dynamic system that can respond really well to external uh, disturbances. Okay, so that compares to the closed loop control. When it's open, you don't have to do the sensing. It doesn't... You basically tell the motor or you tell the actuator to do some force. How, how, how does this work in your actuator? 
Yeah, so uh, it starts with having a motor that is very linear in the relationship between current and torque. Mm -hmm. So uh, since we know rough, we, we know to like within a couple of percent what torque we will achieve given a certain current, mm -hmm. we can just ask our amplifier for like two amps and know that we get like two Newton meters if, mm -hmm. if it was a ratio of one to one. And then we can trust that number. Mm -hmm. uh, then we make sure that our transmissions, which are synthetic rope drives, are very low ratio, so they don't scale badly with the respective friction and inertia and everything, mm -hmm. and that they are don't have any they don't have any backlash, and they also have very little friction. Mm -hmm. So then our output torque at the joint is purely a scalar, a scale based on the actual torque we applied at the motor. So if we have a Typically in our motor, for most systems, we have like a transmission ratio of around three. So then that would mean like if I applied two newton meters at the motor, I apply six newton meter at the joint, mm -hmm. and that is quite close to the correct value. And then we just can just compute this out to the end of whatever link we're talking about, and we know the force at the end of that link. Mm -hmm. And uh, since we're not closing the loop on this, it's also passively stable in interaction with the environment. So there's essentially actually no frequency at all because we're not closing the loop. Mm -hmm. Let's see. And can you tell me a bit about direct force control with this? Yeah. So so what we basically do is we have this uh, rod example with our motor, and there is a small synthetic rope transmission in between, but it's pretty small. for all purposes, it's quite close to the actual simple rod example. Mm -hmm. And then we scale this to 23 degrees of freedom by just putting joints after each other. And um, then it gets a bit more complicated, of course, but it's in principle, it's the same. Mm -hmm. So and you're saying you take this rod example and you keep adding joints and this is how you get your robotic platform basically yeah so so and like then, in a, basically in any robot right you would uh -huh. have like you start with like your one degree of freedom and then you add another degree of freedom on top mm -hmm. of it and you like, yep all these links yeah you get all these links and you get some tree structures after a while if you have like two arms or legs and mm -hmm. stuff going on uh, and now at this point we don't don't only want to do like uh, open loop torque control we want to actually do what we call direct force control which is you, based on knowing the accelerations in all your joints, you can transform this into Cartesian space for, for example, your end effector. Mm -hmm. So you could then say that I want to apply a certain force in a certain direction with my end effector in Cartesian space. Mm -hmm. So along X in my world frame, I want 40 Newton. Mm -hmm. So I want to push this hard down on this table. Yes. Kind of thing. Okay. And then you can do that actually together with the trajectory also. So you can yep. say like, I'm going to move and I'm going to exert a force of 40 newton meter on whatever I'm interacting with. So then if the table wasn't exactly where you thought it were, so you hit the table like a bit before you thought it would hit the table, you're mm -hmm. st still stopping, you're still exerting 40 newton meters on mm -hmm. 40 newton on the table, and you can do that impact at quite high speed because the system is uh, to such an extent passively stable, and it will not give any huge impact forces to the table because the reflected inertia is low. What do you mean exactly passively stable? Uh, so uh, what I mean is, uh, like I said, if you, if you look at the, when you close the loop on a torque sensor, mm -hmm. then you have a certain bandwidth, mm -hmm. uh, depending on your control, uh, on your control frequency, mm -hmm. that you can respond to. Mm -hmm. But in our case, we're just actually applying a constant force. Mm -hmm. So there is no bandwidth. So if you hit the table at some bandwidth, uh, sorry, at some um, with some force, Mm -hmm. then you would not be bouncing a lot. 
Mm. Like, and it depends on like what kind of force you want to exert on the table. You would typically mm -hmm. say it gets into impedance. Yeah. So when you hit the table, you want to have a certain like spring damper yep. ratio, and uh, we can have essentially whatever spring damper ratio we uh, want. So you, are you saying you can basically dissipate any energy? Yeah, so you can dissipate the energy. It's a good way of saying it, and gotcha. you can also like learn what should the impedance be to interact with this environment. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so it would be like if I want to say move my hand through water or something, I might want stiffer impedance so that I can. It's a it's a thicker, more viscous thing, so I might want higher impedance. Is it correct? Yeah, and also it's a function Versus of like accuracy. Is also a function of like how oh, you yes. pick your impedance. more impedance, more accurate. So, yeah. Correct? So yeah. So uh, impedance is to a certain extent just a, a fancy word for like uh, a PD controller. Mm -hmm. So you're saying like, okay, your P is your spring and your D is your damper. Yep. And if you're moving with a quite, so if we could say that, if you're moving quite stiffly, then you're just saying that I'll scale my error terms mm -hmm. and then you will have very accurate movement. We can do that. We can do super stiff control with very high accuracy. Yes. But at that point, it's really hard to interact with the world around you. Mm -hmm. Because the world will push back on you and you will like push back on the world and you will get a lot of forces that you didn't want. Mm -hmm. So if you could move very softly, but still move fast and roughly accurate, mm -hmm. it makes interaction much easier. So that's really what we're working towards. And like probably safer too. And safer, much with safer. Yeah. So like making sure that you can move with very low impedance and still do roughly accurate tracking. Mm -hmm. yeah. Gotcha. Okay, then... So one thing that strikes me is this is quite so how how does this compare to a series elastic actuator it seems quite interesting Yeah uh it is very interesting so uh with a series elastic actuator you're kind of trying to solve the same problem you say that uh, okay we your your torque sensor in your joint won't give you high enough bandwidth to be able to respond to impacts with an environment. Mm -hmm. So you need some spring in your system to take that impact. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go with a very soft spring, then it actually works really well in impacts because the spring will take up the impact. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, now you move your problem into like, how do you move in a good manner when you have a really soft spring? Mm -hmm. And the robot won't move as well. You, you will suffer yeah. bad accuracy and... Also, for It'll some interactions, you would like to have a different spring coefficient, yeah. and you're kind of stuck with the spring you have. Uh, or if you can go with like a super stiff spring, which is typically not implemented as a spring at all. It's just like uh, you have an encoder on both sides of your motor shaft, so you can like see how much did your shaft deflect. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you can't really take the super harsh impacts mm -hmm. because you don't have enough of a spring effect in your system. Mm -hmm. And you don't have, uh, but but then you can move quite well. Gotcha. So as long as your impacts aren't too high of a frequency, you can use your series elastic then to basically use the torque of your motor to do kind of a virtual compliance, so that your system can be driven backwards and you don't get the force spikes, but you get limitations in bandwidth. Well, since we are natively compliant, mm -hmm. it is we don't really have that limit. No. And then you can also vary the impedance depending on what you want to do, which yeah. you can't quite do with series. You have to put a new spring in if you want to change. Yeah. There, there is actually some interesting work in that, which is really oh. fringe, but there are some guys uh, making robots which have variable impedance. Yes, they have springs actuators. and dampers, and then they have motors on the springs and dampers to like wind and unwind dampers and springs to change the coefficients while moving. 
And like you can solve all of these. Pre- it's not that you can't solve all it's these just problems. It's just the complexity just increases and increases yeah. and the cost increases and increases. And you're introducing all of these components just because you put the gears in there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like where we think about outside of the box and just say like, okay, let's let's re- remove these high transmission ratios, and the system just becomes much simpler and also much more capable. So it's like a double dip. You get both the capability, safety, and the simpler system. Mm-hmm. But you do need a much, much stronger actuator. So that's a lot of core to what we did in the company is that given this, we realized that we needed a better actuator and designed our really high torque to weight actuator. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about designing that actuator and how you optimize for different things than um, actual, than I, uh, actuators are normally optimized for? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. So, um, of course, it starts with the simple things first. Like, we actually really optimized for torque to weight at low speeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, because since we don't have a high transmission ratio, so we don't need the really high speeds. Yeah. And um, Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. So, the obvious things are, is like, we go with an outrunner motor because it has, like, a bigger big lever arm on the, um, uh, on the air gap of the mm-hmm. magnet field, which is, like, an implicit gearing, so you get a higher torque. Uh, and then you use really good magnets, you use a bit thicker magnets because you want more torque. And then, of course, we add some black magic we can't talk about, with like mm-hmm. some how we amplify some magnetic fields and how we do some optimizations on geometry on the motor to make sure that you can get the extra performance out of it. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And you're also selling the motors, right? Uh, yeah, we're selling them separately. separately. So it's yes. really awesome. We have a lot of companies buying them in robotics. Uh, and it gives us a lot of valuable feedback, and it's really nice to like get the product out to your customers, and mm-hmm. it helps us drive up the volume and uh, quality the on this. So yeah. it also like helps us scale the volume for our own robot, right? Because we need very interesting need the yeah. motors for our own motors, uh, for our own, own platform. Yeah. That, so then, talking more about direct force control, how does an interaction look with? So if I want a robot to pick up a box or something, how would it? look if I was using direct force control as compared to, I don't know, other methods? Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question. And I, and I would say, like, to a large part, this is, uh, we don't have all the answers. We're Mm-mm. currently working on this. It's kind of an open problem, right? So, but the box is a cool example because if you want to pick up a box, uh, what we typically do is we just say that, okay, your your hands are coming in from the sides of the box, mm-hmm. and uh, you just move your hands together with a certain force until your hands hit each other. So uh, at that point, since that won't happen because before that we will hit you will hit the box. Mm-hmm. So you're hitting the box with the hands and you're squeezing the box with a certain force, and then you're in a st- stable grasp. Now exactly where the box was isn't really relevant because you're just moving your arms t- together until like it's squeezing something in between them, which is the box. Mm-hmm. And you can do it at quite high speed, and it still works because because of the native compliance, the mm-hmm. low reflected inertia, and everything we talked about, yes. and that you def- don't get the force spikes because when you actually hit the box, the box isn't exerting a large force back into the system. You still have like good control over your forces mm-hmm. at the impact point, and uh, that that just means you need to think a bit differently about like how do you approach the problem of, for example grasping something mm-hmm. and you could get much what should I say like uh, you need less feedback so mm-hmm. you could do like uh, a more open loop approach also to the control problem of picking up something mm-hmm. so which is generally faster 
yes, it is a lot faster. You can do the movements a lot faster because you're not, for example, I don't need to close the loop on uh, the visual servoing exactly for that problem in that specific moment and like mm -hmm. control that at a high frequency. It's enough that the system hasn't drifted too much and I know roughly where the box is so I can grasp the box. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. Interesting. That really also comes down to like how when you don't have friction, you don't have backlash mm -hmm. and basically a direct and you don't have any torque sensors in between, then your system becomes very close to linear. So mm. you can apply some really cool control techniques and you can get really good uh, be really good performance with learning approaches because your system is actually so close to linear. So it's a easier system to control, which opens up a lot of uh, possibilities. And then we haven't really had time to explore all of this yet. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to exploring this together with the research community. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Yes, definitely. It's very interesting for the types of problems it opens up. One other thing we mentioned when talking about the motors earlier was how you've looked into solving kind of the cogging problem or that problem where um, when you have the part that rotates in the motor, it locks to each of the magnets. Um, and so this kind of makes it jump from position to position. Yeah, that, that is a really big problem, especially when you get to low transmission ratios because uh, you don't have any inertias. That Carry Here your through. inertia would actually help you because that would dampen out this yeah. uh, problem. Um, so uh, here we're applying some uh, deep learning methodologies to actually just learn a feed forward. So since this is quite deterministic uh, mm -hmm. and state dependent, so like at a certain position, you can compute a feed forward so that if I ask for two newton meters for my motor, I should actually have my amplifier ask for a command which is two newton meters plus a bias where that bias is the variation in torque depending on the position the motor is in with respect to the cogging. And if you just compute a good model for this, uh, you can uh, almost cancel away the cogging. Mm -hmm. So it appears to move in a smooth way. So, so then you get really smooth motion. Yes. Yeah, so then you get the best of both worlds. You get like really high torque, and then you just basically cancel the cogging in software. Mm -hmm. And then you can also feed into this model things like temperature and other all things that would like state all, all, yeah, would all sorts of states that would affect this. So you can get your motor performance to be as linear as possible. Wow. Yeah. And then how did you like train and test? with this deep learning approach? No, this is uh, really, actually, it's a quite simple approach to it. Yep. And uh, it's not done by me, it's done by one of my colleagues called Bran. But uh, it's um, really high, high gain, stiff velocity control. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you just look at what currents do you need to apply mm -hmm. to achieve uh, the constant velocity. Mm -hmm. Your deviations from constant velocity will be your error. And based on that, you can back out your feed forward and actually just create a huge map of this by running the motor. And then you can train on that data afterwards. You don't actually, there's like no in the loop feedback. It's just mm -hmm. done in post. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Really? Wow. Very interesting. So it's not really sophisticated. It's not like a super no. sophisticated learning approach or anything. Still, it's quite just a cool like, application. Uh, it's really simple and it's super effective. <laughs> so yeah. that's the best, uh, best way to do it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, now, would you tell me a bit about launching your platform into the research community and what contributions you hope it enables researchers to make? Yeah, sure. So as the long term of our company is 
getting these robots out into people's homes, doing really useful tasks in people's home. First in like a little care market and then later towards the whole market in general. Mm -hmm. uh, we really hope that researchers can help us solve all of the problems still remaining and everything from like kitchens, making food, doing decluttering, human-machine interaction, mm -hmm. uh, all of these things. And really hoping that our platform can uh, help further this by having common ground on like being able to sh replicate research across labs. Like the PR2 was a really good example of this, enabling a lot of research labs to uh, replicate each other's work. And it's been uh, quite a while since the PR2 came out. And uh, yeah, I think uh, our platform could be a nice update on that also. So how do you want to engage the research community with your platform? That's a really good, uh, really interesting question. So um, we're opening an uh, office now in San Francisco, since uh, a lot of uh, the research institutes we're talking to is in the US area. And there we will be sure to staffing up with application engineers, service technicians, all this, making sure that we can help our users in the research community uh, focus get to focus on the research and not on like how to integrate with our platform or that the robot is actually working when you should need it and you should just like be able to actually run your research mm -hmm. and we are so dependent on the research community because we are trying to solve in the long term we're trying to solve tasks that enable us to actually put this robot out in people's home and solve real problems in elderly mm -hmm. care and later in the home market something like and Rosie we, the robot yeah, yeah <laughs> Rosie the robot would go right yeah. and we can't do that alone so we're really going to like uh, be uh, carried on the shoulders of the research community and we should do everything we can to help them uh, achieve our goals together. So like I said, like really good support in integrating against our platform and making sure that our platform has really good uptime so that you can run your code on a robot every day and not worry about the hardware. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. But if you haven't had enough yet, you can simply visit robohub.org forward slash podcast for all our past episodes. We've been making episodes for years, so there's plenty to discover. And to keep us going for many years to come, you can support us by becoming a patron. You can give as much or as little as you like. A few dollars a month can make a huge difference. Currently, we're fundraising so we can bring you the latest from the International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA, in Canada, which is happening at the end of this month. You can learn more about our campaign and how to be a patron on our website at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back with a brand new episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Lodi with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>